interesting portion of scripture that we read here this morning. I'm sure that many of you have read this. How many of you have read this portion of scriptures before? You know, Jesus turning water into wine, how that happened. And here in John chapter 2, verse 1 and, tw 1 and 12, it's preceded, of course, by the first chapter. And we see that in the first chapter, the gospel of John is a verbal testimony by first the apostle John, secondly, John the Baptist, those were two different men, and then thirdly, by five disciples of John the Baptist, who then became disciples of Christ. So here's John the Baptist. He had all these disciples. Five of them, when Jesus got baptized, started following Jesus and became part of his 12 disciples. Now, all three, these verbal testimonies, or these who gave verbal testimonies, claim that Jesus is the Word. That He is the light. This is what we learned in the first chapter. That He is the life. That He is with God. That He, Jesus, is God. That He is God in human flesh. That He is the Lamb of God. That He is the coming Messiah or the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. That He is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. That He is the Son of God. And that He is also the King of Israel. This was the testimony of John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and those five disciples of John who then became disciples of Jesus. And as we continue into chapter 2 of the book of John, we go beyond the testimony or the verbal testimony uh, that they had of Christ. We go beyond the words of Christ Himself to the works of Christ. And both of these establish who He is. God in, in the flesh, Lamb of God, the Messiah, the one spoken of in the Old Testament, the Son of God, the King of Israel. All of this declares Jesus for who He is. And we see that these works that I'm referring to right here are the miracles of Jesus which demonstrate His divinity. We see in, uh, that in chapter 2, He turns water into wine. This is the chapter we're dealing with today. We also see in chapter 4, He heals a dying man. And then he cures the paralyzed man in chapter 5. He creates food for thousands and thousands of people in chapter 6. Then also in chapter 6, he walks on water. And then we see that he gives sight to the blind man in chapter 9. He raises his dead man back to life in chapter 11. He creates a meal for his disciples in chapter 12. And then, in chapter 21, excuse me. And then his crowning miracle is when he himself rises from the dead. These are the miracles that the Apostle John records, and by these, uh, uh, by these he is established. But these were not the only miracles that Jesus performed. We see in John 20, verse 30, I'm just giving you a little bit of background so that we can dive right into what the meaning of these miracles were. But in John chapter 20, verse 30, we see that it says, So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So here we just saw nine major miracles, but we are told that there were many more miracles. As a matter of fact, Jesus' daily procedure was walking around performing miracles. Miracles happened around Him every day, all the time. We see in John chapter 21, verse 25, it says, But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I, ex I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So, 
Let's look at the purpose of miracles. Have you ever wondered about that? Why miracles? What do we get from the fact that Jesus performed these miracles? Because this is, in fact, where His public ministry was birthed. This is where it started. This is how it was started, by performing a miracle. So what is the purpose of Jesus performing miracles? We see in John 2, verse 21, it says, This beginning of His, design, of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and revealed, number one, His glory, and number two, His disciples believed in Him. Number one, revealed His glory, and number two, His disciples believed in Him. And every time Jesus performed a miracle, more of God's glory was revealed, and more people believed in who He was. These were the signs, or these were the purposes of miracles. So what is the meaning of the glory of God? Because if we had to say that a miracle reveals God's glory, well, what is God's glory? Oftentimes, people will receive a reward and they will say, this is for the glory of God, and then they take that reward home. <laughs> people will do whatever happens that's good in their life, they will want to give credit to God, and that's wonderful. That's wonderful. But what is the actual meaning of the glory of God? Last week, we looked at a few ways of seeing the glory of God and how to discover the meaning of the glory of God, which is really a very interesting concept because the glory of God is a multifaceted concept. It's like a diamond. You can look at it from many different angles, and every different angle will show you a very different picture of the beauty and the splendor and the power, the authority and the sovereignty of who God is. Every time you look at the glory of God, you're amazed at all of those splendor and beautiful attributes of God. One thing we saw was that the word glory means weight. Weight. And so when somebody glorifies God in their life, they open up the Bible and what they see God says is very weighty to them is very serious to them. More weighty. Do I, am I saying the word weighty right? It just sounded wrong for a little bit there. More weighty. <laughs> it weighs more. It's, it's more serious to them than anything else in this world. Why do you see Jesus say to His mother when she comes and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He says, woman. What has this got to do with me? Now, when you translate that word woman, it wasn't a disrespectful thing because Jesus was never disrespectful. But when he said woman, what does this have to do with me? He was making a very, very clear point that you, ma'am, um, are not my authority anymore. I now obey my father alone. In heaven that's what happened there but so anybody who glorifies God in their life do not they do not trivialize the things of God in scriptures it's not trivial to them it's heavy to them it's serious to them it's huge bigger than anything else 
Whatever you find to be more weighty in your life than scriptures is what you glorify. <laughs> it's like worship. Worship comes from the word worth-ship. Whatever you find to be of greatest value is what you worship. And if you find something else more valuable than what God is saying right here, well, then that is what you're worshiping. You're worshiping an idol outside of God. But if this trumps all things in value to you, you are worshiping God. So worship is not me singing a song. Worship is me assigning value. And in the same way, for me to glorify God is to assign weightiness, seriousness. But this is why people live like there is no eternity. This is why they live like there is no God. Because they don't glorify Him. It's not a weighty matter to them. Actually, it's a fun matter to them. Uh, the churches for the longest time preached, you know, Buddy Jesus. I used to love that, actually. But I feel like it doesn't translate well into my children. I'm not communicating to them the glory of God by buying them a little t-shirt that says uh, birthday boy with Jesus on it for Christmas. I, I, I'm just, no, I'm not saying it's a sin. I'm just saying I don't think I'm communicating the right message to the people I am attempting to disciple. So I don't like, I don't like buddy Jesus. I don't like, um, what do they call that? Boyfriend Jesus. <laughs> That's why I don't necessarily like the boyfriend songs because it's, it's taken away from him the weightiness of who he really is, his glory. So we, we learned that the glory of God is the weight, the seriousness, the priority of who he is and what he says. But we also learned that the glory of God can be revealed through the universe. The all of creation speaks to us even today when you woke up there was a sun. It speaks of the glory of God. Who made the sun? God. Yeah. I mean, look at the sun. Can you imagine that there's a creator behind that that didn't just create it but sustains it? Wow. If you look into the, if you look into the universe, it's like looking at a painting. And when you look at... Actually, Chris Crum and I were talking about it this week. If you, when you look at... The Mona Lisa, people stare at the Mona Lisa and they're in awe at the Mona Lisa. But what are they in awe of? Because I mean, it's really, I've seen nicer paintings than that one, haven't you? When they stare at the Mona Lisa, they're thinking about everything behind that painting, they think of the history behind that painting. So when you look at the universe, you're thinking about what's behind, behind all of that is an almighty creator that created it all and currently sustains it all. That's why you stand in front of the Grand Canyon and you go, wow. Because inside of you, eternity has been planted by God to recognize the eternal God behind what you're looking at. That's the, 
glory of God, or you might say the beauty of God, or the splendor of God, the, the awesomeness of God, or the wow factor, the, the breathtaking experience of God, that's the glory of God. We see the glory of God not just in creation, but we also see it in, in earthen vessels. When a divine attribute, like something like forgiveness, is reflected by a human being, that is an extremely attractive and humbling thing to see. How many of you have seen somebody repent? How many of you have seen somebody forgive somebody who repents? How many of you have seen somebody live in absolute humility? Well, those attributes belong to God. Those attributes are His attributes. Honor, somebody who's extremely honorable. That attribute belongs to God. And God placed that attribute inside of this earthen vessel. And when those attributes seep through, it's amazing. And that is you seeing the glory of God. Not just... Not just the universe speaks of the glory of God, but human beings, earthen vessels, these clay pots that carry some of those things pertaining to God that seep through. That's the glory of God. That awe-inspiring thought. Now in the same way, when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, we see the glory of God shining forth. Remember that's what it said in John 2 verse 11? This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And what was it? He revealed God's glory. And when He revealed God's glory, people believed in Him. When He revealed God's glory, people put their faith in Him. And so now, as He's performing miracles, the glory of God is being revealed. Because behind every miracle is a message from God about God and who He is. Every miracle tells you about God and who He is. Each miracle speaks of His glory in a very specific and a very distinctive way. You see, when Jesus walks on the water, or when He walked on the water, He revealed to everyone that He was God. He revealed His glory which was that He stands above natural law. That's what He was revealing to everyone. That He's not subject to natural law, but that He determines natural law. That's what He was revealing as He walked on water. When Jesus calmed the storms, He was revealed as God, <coughs> who has authority over the elements. He was just showing them His authority by commanding the elements. When He heals the man who was blind from birth, He reveals Himself as the one who gives light. That's what you need in order to see. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, He reveals Himself that He has power over death. Every miracle had a purpose. The purpose was to glorify God, how? By revealing who He was. 
Just like creation reveals him, so his miracles reveal him. Every miracle Jesus performed wasn't so much to save the blind man from his blindness uh, or to prevent Lazarus from dying because he was ultimately going to die, right? But was to reveal his own glory, the glory from the Father. Seeping through every miracle, there is another aspect of God's unspeakable glory, God's immeasurable beauty, His splendor, His power, His authority, His eternality. That's what miracles are about. Miracles are not for my comfort. It's for God's glory. I was actually going to say this earlier on, but, you know, I must tell you that God still heals today, right? It's an amazing thing. Um, so a great testimony, and I don't have the numbers, but, you know, we've all been corporately praying for Pam Clough, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and her testimony is spectacular. I mean, I can't believe, like, time and time again, God just shows himself to be a God of mercy, grace, power, and healing over and over again. But you know that Pam had a heart attack not too long ago, a few weeks ago, right? And after the heart attack, she goes for tests only to find out that her heart is now better, stronger than prior to the heart attack. <laughs> this was a third heart attack and they said after the, you know, when we, when we met her the first time in the hospital downtown, uh, she, was, she was on the list, waiting to be on the list for a heart transplant. And her heart just started improving. And when I sat next to her cardiologist, who's not a Christian, at a function we were at together, he leaned over to me and he said, you know what happened to Pam is not normal. We don't know how that happened, that her heart just started improving from the percentage that it was functioning to a much larger percentage. And he said, you can actually call that a miracle if you want. <laughs> like, I, I will, thank you. <laughs> it was his words. I, you can actually call that a miracle if you want. But so this week, yesterday, I spoke with Pam, and, and her ejection fraction, is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay, ejection fraction is what they measure the amount of blood that your heart actually pumps out. And, and hers was really low. Her heart was pumping out very small amounts of blood. And after the heart attack, suddenly, now, it's pumping out almost the normal amount. I don't know. She was in the 20s, 30-ish. Yeah. Um, fatal. And she was in the 20s. And now she's, after the heart attack, 44. Yeah. Again, it's not completely normal, but she's up there. Isn't it amazing? But uh, God, God can do anything He wants to do. Amen. The Bible says, if any one of you is sick, what must you do? Call for the elders to lay hands on them. They will pray for the sick. The sick sins will be forgiven of theirs of them, and they will recover. They will be healed. So I wanted to preface this because, you know, I've heard somebody say, "Well, Jacques, you guys don't believe in praying for the sick." What are you even talking about? Of course we pray for the sick. You guys don't believe God performs miracles? Of course we do. We don't build our ministry around it. Let me show you. 
because I think this is important for us as a church. Since this is a sermon about miracles and Jesus performing miracles by starting His ministry that way, I wanted to answer the question, what to watch out for in ministries who practice healing as we do. We practice healing. <laughs> You're in a ministry that believes in it. Well, what is it that you have to watch out for in a ministry like ours? Who practice healing. And then you have ministries who perform miracles and other power gifts, prophecy and so forth, right? But Jesus actually addressed it and He gave us a very, very clear um, picture as to, or measurement to see what was right and what was wrong. Very clear. It says it right there in Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, which day is that day? Judgment day. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now many people can go to the palm reader, you know, to the psyche and figure out what their future is going to be, which is really garbage. But they can do that, or they can go to a church and receive a prophecy, you know. While these guys were not the psychic guys, these guys were the ones in the church prophesying, right? He says, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy how? In your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. These guys were in the ministry. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out devils. They had authority in Jesus' name. They exercised their authority in Jesus' name successfully. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? And in your name performed many miracles. In your name performed many miracles. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me. Now, he's about to explain why he said that to them. Why did these ministers of healing and performers of the miraculous in the name of Jesus, why did Jesus tell them, get away from me, I don't know you? There's a reason why. And he makes it absolutely, abundantly clear as to what that reason is. He says, leave me, verse 23, you who practice lawlessness. You who practice, not you who sin because you're weak. No, you're the one who practices it. You're the one, Jesus said, who decided that the law is over with. There's no law. Really? It says, you who practice lawlessness, you guys, get away from me. That's the, those are the guys. Now I'm going somewhere. Follow me for a second there. You see, there are clear takeaways from this portion of Scripture. First is that these people thought they were, they were convinced of their salvation when in fact they were lost. They were so surprised to find out on the day of judgment that they were unsaved. But I thought I was saved. Number two, these were not only people who thought they were believers, they had to have been in a prominent position amongst all other believers. They were not the ones sitting in the back row, excuse me, Dave. 
They were not the ones sitting in the back row right there next to you. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I didn't mean to point you out, but, you know, I didn't use Charlie. <laughs> I was just going to go this way, Charlie. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But these were not the people who were sitting in the back row of the church, meaning, you know, proverbial back row, um, basically um, unknown. Nobody knows them. They don't participate in any way. You know, these were not they. These were the ones sitting in the front row of the church, the proverbial front row of the church. They were the ones praying for the sick, laying hands on the sick, and the sick were recovering. These were the ones casting out devils. These were the ones performing miracles in Jesus' name. They seem to have been like the ones who were actively ministering, all in the name of Jesus, and they actually did these things successfully. So we see they were shocked that they were saved. Why? Because they were so prominent and so successful at the power gifts, the power gifts. Number three, Jesus did not know them, he says. And the reason he did not know them was because they practiced lawlessness, their unrepentant, sinful lifestyles. Somebody who practices lawlessness is not the one who sinned. It's the one who says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to live this way. I'm just going to live like this. Ah, the law's done with. There's no such thing as repentance. That's Old Testament stuff. Well, why don't you tell that to the Apostle Paul who went to the leaders of the church and said, this guy who's in sexual sin, you guys have done nothing about. Why have you not thrown him out of the church yet? Treat him as an unbeliever because that's who he is. And if he comes to his senses, at least you've won a brother. But stop treating people who live, who practice sin as a lifestyle, without the attempt of repenting, stop treating them like brothers and sisters because they're not. So Jesus says he did not know them. Their unrepented sinful lifestyles was the evidence of the unregenerated hearts. Let me say this. Their chosen, unrepentant lifestyles, these things were evidence of their unregenerate hearts. The fact that they chose to live in, in certain sins with no effort of repenting from it, no struggle to get out of it, was the evidence that they are not born again. Now we can see that all the way through the Gospels. We see that all the way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We see it in Jude. We see it everywhere. 1st John says that, you know, I mean, it says it everywhere. I want to start with if anyone, you know, uh, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you. He that is in the light, he cannot sin. In other words, he cannot continue living like that. That's just basically what he's saying. Number four, when Jesus said they were practicing lawlessness, he was not referring to the Jewish cleanliness laws. He was not referring to the Jewish civil laws. He was not referring to Jewish ceremonial laws. Why? Because all those laws went away with the cross. But there's one set of laws that didn't go away, and that was God's moral laws. God's moral laws. How do we know this? Because before the cross, adultery was a sin. After the cross, adultery is still a sin. Before the cross, stealing was a sin. After the cross, stealing is still a sin. Before the cross, uh, uh, you know, idol worship, um, idol worship was a sin. It's still a sin. So moral laws continued through from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Jesus was saying in that day, in the coming judgment, on that day, He was saying, you guys practiced moral lawlessness. Moral lawlessness. Again, 
Nobody here is perfect. I'm not perfect. By no means. Chief of all sinners. But I tell you, I struggle with my sin. I struggle. <laughs> I do not choose it. It's like it's chosen me, right? It's like, oh my gosh. I but I hate my sin. That's not the one who practices it. That's the one who's practicing to give it up. But then there are those who practice to hold on to it. They've given themselves to it willingly. They don't fight it. They don't repent. They're not trying to turn away from it. They're not confessing their sins. They don't beg God for forgiveness over that. They're just like, yeah, this is who I am. <laughs> That's the guy Jesus is talking about. So watch this, number five. These were obviously people who were actively involved in ministry, who had charismatic gifts, but they never preached against sin. They never called sinners to repentance because somehow in their doctrine, sin was no longer a problem. Somehow in their doctrine, repentance is nowhere in the New Testament. Nonsense. Garbage. It's everywhere. What do you think Jesus said to all the churches in, in, in Revelation? He said to six of them, unless you repent, I will throw you away. I mean, if anybody teaches that there's no such thing as repentance because repentance is a work, they don't understand repentance. You see, repentance is not a work. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Not a work. That's why if you are able to repent and you desire to repent, fall on your knees and thank God for that gift of repentance because there are those who sought repentance but couldn't find any. They were not able to repent. It was impossible for them to repent because they don't have that gift from God to repent. So you got to seek Him while He may be found. So, I wanted to say that, and I spent more time on it than I should have, but I felt like it's necessary. If you, family of God, are closely related to a ministry, or you come from a ministry who successfully prays for the sick, who successfully casts out demons, they obviously have the power gifts. You have to ask yourself these two questions. Are you ready? Number one, do they also teach the necessary fruits of holiness? How? By teaching against sin. Or do they never mention sin? I mean, there are major, major ministries that you and I have listened to for 10 years, and you've never heard them talk about sin one time. Not one time. So you have to ask yourself the question, do they teach the necessary fruits of holiness by teaching against sin? And number two, Ask yourself, do they call people to repentance from their sin or do they not? Do they call people to repentance from their sin? Because that's, the, <laughs> that's what the apostles really did when they went about preaching. I mean, John started, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn for the kingdom of God is here. Prepare the way of Him. And then at the end, Jesus says, unless you repent, it's all over in Revelation. I mean, his ministry starts with and ends with what? Repent. And somehow, I'm reading that people are saying there's no repentance. I've heard people in our church that used to be here tell me that there's no such thing as repentance because you are not saved by a work. 
No, no, folks. Repentance is a result from something, right? It's if you're saved, you're a repentant individual. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Acts 20 when the apostles were preaching, Peter was preaching, he says, now, do these two things. Repent before God and have faith in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Repent before God and have faith in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then the new heart that is saved is a heart that repents. So in other words, the conclusion is that salvation is preceded and followed by repentance. Salvation is preceded by preceded and followed by repentance. Repentance is the mark of a truly born-again individual. And so therefore, the mark of a truly unsaved individual is the one who cannot be taught anything. They're unteachable. You can't be talking to me about stuff. I'm not interested. Because even if I didn't hear you, I'm, I'm t- I, I ain't re- forget you. I'm like this with Jesus. Jesus and I, we're buddies. This is, this is the deception, right, of this age. If this uh, ministry that you might be acquainted with, if they do not teach against sin unto holiness and repentance from sin, then you have to recognize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you guys practice prophecy in my name. You heal the sick in my name, and you did mighty miracles in my name. And there's a second thing. He says, but go away from me. Why? Because you practice lawlessness. There was sin right there, and you couldn't care less about it. You had power, but you didn't care about sin. You didn't preach against it. You didn't call people to repentance because your heart wasn't, your heart wasn't born again. Can you see that in that scripture? He absolutely talks about those two things. The one proves that the other one was false. Miracles. Miracles. God still performs miracles. The question is, the question is, does He know us? Because miracles prove nothing. They prove absolutely nothing. So what do we see in our text, however, where Jesus performs this miracle? Well, the first thing we see is that it was a wedding feast. This is so important. Jesus, His family, and His disciples, and His mom attended a wedding feast. That's what we see in the scriptures we were talking about, right? The second thing we identify was that there was a groom. Remember the groom? He went and they asked him like, hey, why do you bring out the best wine at the end? Usually they put the best wine out front. Thirdly, we see that there wasn't enough wine It was not enough wine, just like there was, you know, those foolish virgins that they didn't have enough oil. In this scenario, there was not enough wine, human failure. There was supposed to be enough wine, but for some reason, there wasn't. And then number four, when I uh, write this out, maybe this will be just clearer to you. I have this urgency for clarity because I think that's what's powerful. Clarity is powerful. Uh, but, th- but fourthly, what I wanted to point out is that we had these jars 
jars that were really purification jars. So let me write purification because I need to explain to you what that was. Purification jars. So as we go through this, make sure to keep in mind that these were the important um, things that we see in our, in our portion of Scripture. The question we have to answer first is, why did the wine run out? Did the host not plan? This was a wedding feast. Who's responsible for having enough wine at the wedding feast? The groom. He had to pay for the whole entire wedding. And these wedding feasts lasted for days on end. He was to underwrite all of it and make sure that he's the host as he hosts this wonderful feast. Nobody else pays. Everybody comes for absolutely free. You can already see the gospel in it, can't you? Can you? Everybody comes absolutely free. He pays for the entire feast. And there will never be any lack. So why did the wine run out? It's an amazing thing how Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding feast. It's, it's an amazing... I was so blown away when I read all the different commentaries on this portion of Scripture that Dave read earlier. He's about to preach the gospel. But why did the wine, wine run out? Maybe the host didn't plan enough. Maybe more people showed up than what they expected. That could be another option. Maybe the groom just ran out of money. I mean, they were just, it just was more expensive than he expected. He didn't budget accurately. This was an embarrassing situation because the groom was to prepare for and pay for the entire wedding, which, of course, as I mentioned, lost days. But this was to prove that the groom has the ability to take care of his new bride. That's why it was an embarrassment. Because if I can't even be a host of one party, how can I take care of my bride? for the rest of her life. I'm already failing, and this is day one. <laughs> you see, the Bible doesn't tell us why the wine ran out, because whether it was failure of human wisdom, failure of human strength, ability, whatever it was, failure of supply, sufficient resources, there was a need the human host could not meet. The gospel always starts by showing us our own depravity, how we do not match up to godly requirements. There's always an embarrassment when we look at ourselves. Uh, we are broken human beings, jars of clay, with zero value other than the value that Jesus puts on us, which is, by the way, His blood, the highest value in all of the universe and heaven. There was a need the human host could not meet. Now let's see the glory of Christ revealed. Jesus reveals, number one, His glory as the ultimate purifier. In John 2, verse 6 and 7, I want you to just look at that, John 2, verse 6 and 7. It says, Now there were six stone pots water pots. There were six stone water pots. These were large water pots. I read that if you took those six stone water pots 
and you added all of the water together that was, that, that was in those pots, that would add up to about 150 gallons of water. Six of them standing there for the Jewish custom of purification. What were those water pots for? Purification, right? Containing two or three measures each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And now there's a reason Jesus chose water pots made for purification. And I'm sure you too can imagine why these purification jars were used by Jesus, why He chose them. Because these were not drinking vessels, these were bathing vessels. This is part of the Jewish custom of purifying themselves before they eat. It's called a ritual purifying. The point here is that Jesus is showing that He is God's final, ultimate plan of purifying Christ's bride, the church. He becomes this vessel, this purifying vessel, that within Him is whatever we need to be purified with. And so by His coming, He's replacing all Jewish rituals of purification. So first, in John 2 verse 4, we see, And Jesus said to her, His mom, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What hour is He talking about? Not the hour of His ministry, the hour of His death. In John 7.30, it says so, they were seeking to arrest Him, and yet no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come to die. We see in John 8 verse 20, the words He spoke in the treasury, He taught as He taught in the temple area, and no one arrested Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. John 12 verse 27, one more, now my soul has become troubled. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. So Jesus was always talking about this hour. And when He said to His mom, woman, ma'am, my hour has not yet come. He was saying, the time of my death is not here yet. The time of my death is not here yet. Since my hour has not yet come to die, I will instead show you what is going to happen when my hour comes. This is what He's saying. Like, my hour is not here. I'm not ready to die. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what's going to happen when I do die, when my hour does come. Then he fills the jars with, that was meant for purifying. He fills them with wine. As though he is saying, since it is not yet my time, I will not die, but I will give you a parable. Now, after Jesus tells the servants to fill purification jars with water to the brim. Why to the brim? Because we don't want to hear the argument that, well, there was still room left and he took, poured a lot of water and then they poured wine on top of it. No, it was filled to the brim, untouched. It's amazing. We don't even know exactly when the miracle happened. But kind of like in between there, while they were pouring the water into the jars uh, to the brim or maybe right after it, we don't know. But he tells his servants to scoop out of the purification jars take it to the head host. How many of you know that Jesus is called the King of Kings, but He's also called the Lord of Hosts? Interesting. So He takes, He tells them, scoop out of those jars some water, take it to the head host. Little did the head host know, the Lord of Hosts 
It was there. The head host was freaking out. They ran out of wine. This is going to be embarrassing. My party is, is going to be talked about very negatively. But little did he know the head host was there. Why did Mary say to Jesus, I just, just want to throw this out. Why did Mary say to, say to the servants, whatever he says, do it. He just said, woman, my hour is not here. What do I have to do with this? And then she says, hey, guys, do whatever he says, and she walks away. But think about it. This is Mary. He's no longer seeing her as his authority. He's no longer obeying her. He doesn't have to do what she says, but he is now about his father's business, right? Yet she knows that if there was ever a problem solver, my boy, <laughs> I mean, you know, Jesus has never given bad advice, right? There was never a time in his life, even as a child, growing up to be age 30, where his mother Mary saw him give bad advice or where he wasn't able to solve the very thing he attempted to solve. I mean, I can see him with a Rubik's Cube. I mean, there's nothing Jesus never succeeded at. And so she knew, obviously she was part of the planning committee of this party because she was the one that found out that there was no wine and she ran to Jesus and she told the servants to do what they needed to do. And that is to do whatever Jesus says. Why? Because she knew if there was ever a problem solver, if there was anybody here that knew how to fix this, it would be this boy of mine. Now, she's never seen him perform a miracle. This was his first miracle. And so, he tells his servants to scoop out the purification jars and take it to the head host. And Jesus chose to put the best wine in the jars that was meant to make people clean. Let me say that again. Jesus chose to put the best wine, to put the best wine in the jars that were meant to make people clean. The wine, the blood. When we receive communion, we receive that cup, that grape juice, which represents what? The blood of Christ. In that cup is the wine, wine, which is represents the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, the purifying jars is a type of Christ's body. The wine is a type of Christ's blood. He's telling us the gospel. Secondly, His glory as the ultimate providing bridegroom. This is His glory. The first way he revealed his glory was as the ultimate purifier, the ultimate purifier. Now he's revealing his glory as the ultimate providing bridegroom. John 2 verse 9 and 10 says, Now when the head waiter tasted the water which had come become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the wine, the water knew, the head waiter called the groom, watch this, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. These servants go to the head waiter and go, man, you're an amazing head waiter. Uh, excuse me, they go to the groom and they say, you're an amazing groom. Every other wedding we've ever been to, they take the best wine and they serve it to everybody. Everybody gets drunk a little bit. And then when they can't really judge what's good and not good, 
They go like, okay, bring out the cheap wine. <laughs> now just let them keep drinking cheap wine, right? But no, you, no, you, you're amazing. You brought out the best wine at the end. You're an amazing groom. Now, the point of this is that it was not true. The groom did not keep the best wine until the end. The groom failed. The groom blew it. The groom didn't know where the wine came from. The groom's heart was pounding. He was thinking, my reputation is shot at this point. I'm embarrassed. I'm shamed. I can't even take care of one party. I'm supposed to take care of this woman for the rest of her life. And everybody's not going to know. But then, he gets to hear this good news. They say, wow, you did a great job. Really, I did? Wow, how did I do this great job? <laughs> you see, that's the point of, what's, a point of this, is that it wasn't true. The groom didn't have enough wine for his own wedding and fell short of fulfilling his responsibilities. He fell short of requirements. Everything that was required of him to be a groom, he failed at. You see, you and I are the groom, the one that falls short of fulfilling requirements. This is Jesus preaching the gospel. The wine they drank freely was the foretaste of the gospel. Jesus knew the time for making the real gospel wine of Calvary had not yet come. That hour wasn't there yet. But this wedding wine poured out of purification jars foreshadowed the best of all wines which is the blood of Christ Himself. This ultimate wine flowing from the cross of Calvary would flow from the purest vessel for the greatest wedding of all time, which is the wedding that we will be participating in, the wedding of the Lamb. Amen. You see, Jesus...